From Music for All and presented by Yamaha, welcome to teaching social emotional learning through music. And now, here's your host, Dr. Scott Edgar. Hi, my name is Scott Edgar. Welcome to our next episode of Teaching Social and Emotional Learning Through Music. We often look to connect dots in this series and in social and emotional learning. And today, I can't tell you how excited I am to connect the dot between performer pedagogue in an area of social and emotional learning and music education that is ripe. We are so honored to have legendary jazz musician and pedagogue Richard Frank with us today. Richard, welcome to our show. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know about the world renowned kind of jazz person, but, you know, I do enjoy my bass back there, you know, and uh, it's great to be here. Well, you've done so much, uh, and I'm so excited to share uh, just a little bit of what you bring to the table. So a little bit of backstory about where, you know, this interesting world of when social and emotional learning came into the limelight, largely because of the pandemic. You know, you and I met for the first time at the Oregon Music Education Conference. And before then, we didn't know each other. But I ended up just coming into your session and sitting back there. And I was like, this guy gets it. This guy's done his homework. This guy is like-minded. And that's the world that we're living in. We have so many people who are doing such fabulous work. And the beauty of what we're trying to do now is just to put us in the same space. So such an honor, my friend. Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting having come across SEL because during the pandemic, I mean, we have lots of time, right? I mean, for those of us that aren't teaching and they have to reinvent their world with with no tools, but I was not able to do clinics or workshops. I'm in Bend, Oregon at the moment because I was riding out the pandemic up here and I couldn't do clinics. I couldn't get into schools. So I had all this time and was able to lock myself into my office and research and explore all these different frameworks. And SEL was just like one of the best hot topics. You know, I, I also looked into the four C's and life skills and five E's and you know, they're all different levels of acceptance, but SEL was really powerful and it really touched on a lot of things. And I'm glad I just signed up for the OMEA and they accepted the program and so glad that you were there because I did know your book <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your writings have been really cool. And I know you've shared some other things with me since um, that I really appreciate, but I'm not an academic, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have a doctorate in education. I have a master's in educational technology. And that's where I started really getting involved in a lot of these different frameworks and how can music education, jazz band, concert band for particular, those are my spaces, become more interactive and creative. Mm, so good. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, you said you, you don't have a doctor. Oftentimes, I think it's a liability because, <laughs> you, you know, you, you're on the ground. You're seeing how this works with our, our teachers, with our students. And that's the exact perspective. So to set the stage, to get us into this, can you tell us a little bit about your journey through this space to value SEL in jazz education? Well, I think the first, the light bulb, right? There's you know, you have, we have these epiphanies and it's like, when are things not really seemingly working? And it's like, wow, I can think of a different way. Happened about 10 or 12 years ago. And I was 
volunteering with my son's high school. And they were playing music and the same pedagogy and the same structured big band in the jazz program. That was 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Mm. And here I was having grown up in a small town in upstate New York and gone through traditional as well as informal. So formal and informal. And But for the last 30, 40 years of my life, I've been doing more of the jazz creative combo writing, producing CD type work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how were these students in this classroom going to get those experiences? And that was the epiphany moment. And that's what started me off on this thing of uh, called Play the Groove. And I've had got 50, hundreds of teachers and educators and experiences to start refining that. So that was the moment in which I felt, okay, we need to look at this differently. I didn't know what that entailed. I was a little naive at the time, and I still can't am naive <laughs> into how hard it is to make change. But at the same point, it was very exciting to go, wow, there's got to be a better way. What is that? Yeah, Richard, so don't worry. We're going to get to play the groove because that, that's the meat and potatoes we're going to talk about today. But, you know, I, I think to understand what some of those challenges are and to say, you know, why change is difficult, I'm cut from the same cloth, my friend. You know, I'm yes. cut from that same cloth of rehearsal, concert-based, to be blunt about it, dead white guy music that has driven our profession for so long. So in your viewpoint, mm-hmm. let's problematize that. What are the challenges we face in what I'll refer to as traditional music education? Well, I think one of the biggest things is trying to take what has been existing and trying to revamp using existing tools. Mm. And existing tools aren't necessarily meant to drive change. You can't have a Zoom session without a computer. So you better learn (laughs) to get a computer and um, get technically involved to be able to do things, right? And then there's the need through the pandemic to start, right? The need, there has to be a need. There needs to be something that drives this change. And so there had to be a need for us to do virtual sessions to interact, especially the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the traditional framework has a lot of great benefits to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to like diss it. And, you know, look at traditional education and music can go from pre-K all the way through high school, into college, into adult life, and anyone starts music at any specific time, right? right. And they all have a set of different needs and a set of different interests and a set of different things. But if we're looking at just the traditional model in education, it's set up on an old paradigm, right? It's set up on this paradigm of focusing on your instrument, play the notes in front of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that pertains to jazz band too, which is often considered a more creative outlet. But jazz bands are often very reading notes on the page. And so this is the dichotomy that we're living in today, right? It's the cognitive dissonance world that we say, oh, we know we need to bring more creativity in. Oh, we need to bring more technology We need to bring more communication and critical thinking into our classrooms. Oh, we need to bring more multitasking and teamwork and creativity and leadership, you know, all these life skills, right? Right. But how do you do that with an existing paradigm? Mm. So it requires a change. It requires a shift. 
it requires a shift in the in the mind, right? <laughs> of the of the people, of the teachers, particularly, of administration, of districts, of states, of councils, of nonprofits. It's of foundations. And to be blunt, of students, too, who have been indoctrinated through the experience. So if we meet them in, in high school and all throughout middle school, it's been slamming notes and rhythms. That's a change. It's a radical change, but at least teenagers are able to adapt quicker because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they're young and they're kind of like somewhat of an open book. They haven't experienced a lot of things. Absolutely. So if someone says to a high schooler, hey, who's John Coltrane? They may look at you with a dumb stare or Dizzy Gillespie or, or whatever. But then at the same point, you could say, hey, let's play this music from Ghana or Guinea or India or Chile or Finland or the American or do R&B or do this or do that. And they go, okay. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> we'll give it a shot, right? So there's a lot of personalities. <laughs> Absolutely. So in, in your viewpoint, and I, I think you've already started to scratch the surface on this, why is jazz either as a curricular space or a, a culture, the right place to embrace some of this paradigm shift into a more creative, student-led process? Well, I think by definition, jazz has those elements of being creative, right? And being more freer and more exploratory and more maybe exclusive in a way too, because not everyone that plays in a jazz that makes a jazz group can make it mm -hmm. because of, well, we're going to get into exclusive when we can and diversity, inclusivity and things like that. But there seems to just be a little bit more fluidity in jazz band than I would say in a concert band where you're dealing with 60 to 80 students, perhaps, and instruments like bassoon and flute and clarinet and euphoniums and a line of percussionists versus a drum set player, mm -hmm. you know, things like this. And with a rhythm section and horns, you're able to have a different sense of freedom. Mm. Now, I think a lot of that can be done in concert band, and I'm starting to beta test concert band things now. And there's different ways of bringing and then a lot of what we're going to talk about in terms of activities into the concert band scene. Sure. But I think the the initial Petri dish <laughs> of a jazz band is a little bit of an easier vehicle to work with. And, and that's an interesting analogy because, as you already referenced, and certainly in my experiences, sometimes jazz bands look a heck of a lot like a concert band with jazz music. Right. And with traditional notes rhythms. And the wonderful world that you're creating really does embrace student voice and student agency. And this really gets to the meat and potatoes of what is at the heart of this series. So Richard, we know that you've discovered this world of SEL and embedded it in many, many different ways, but there's a lot of different definitions of SEL out there yeah. and a lot of different interpretations of it. So what does SEL mean to you? Wow. Uh, I think there's one word that comes up for me. It's basically creativity hmm. in my space. I mean, it can mean a lot of different things. I also think SEL is about not getting bored. Ooh, I adore that. Can you dig deeper on that one? I've never heard it put that way. I got really excited. 23, 2, 3, 4, 24, 2, 3, 4, 25, 2, 3, 4... All right. So I came up with a, a comic and, and to actually show that. But anyways, it's an interesting thing. It's like, 
look, if, if a student only is thinking about the notes on their page and they're not thinking of arranging it, of how to be creative, how to explore possibilities, how to work with their neighbors, how to work with their group as an ensemble, how to, you know, do things that are more engaging, mm-hmm. they're on the edge of getting bored. Mm. And if they don't play all that well, they're kind of getting like shrunken down more and more as the better players seemingly get more bold. Mm. So, you know, this creativity and this ability to level up, Mm. I think, is another area of SEL that makes it very important to me. You know, but then we can get into the real things. Uh, You know, we can get into Maslow's hierarchy of needs and compare that to Castle in terms of things. But if you're not belonging, Mm -hmm. if you don't feel belonging, if you don't have a connection to the teacher, Mm -hmm. to the music, Mm -hmm. to your colleagues, to your own self-awareness of how to voice an opinion, right? being confident, you know, and develop these esteemed things, there's no way you're going to get to self-actualization. <laughs> and it seems to me, you know, I mean, clearly you've done so much thinking in this space. And where I often get frustrated and where I find that a lot of teachers get frustrated is like, oh, that's great. Now, how are we going to do it? Right. And this is where you've come in and really taken it to the next level and just have impressed the socks off me, Richard. Can <laughs> you tell us about Play the Groove? Well, it's, it's been redesigned from the ground up. And it's, what's really cool is I didn't start my heavier master's academia until later after the development of the core aspects of Play the Groove. And I think that was smart on my part because if I was to try to put you know, my take on the academia language and what's in place, I probably would not have created the same, what I feel is groundbreaking ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, to touch on this jazz band question once more, though, just before we go on, is like, I figured in my head too, I need to start with something I know really well, which is And I don't want to keep calling it jazz. I like to call it groove music. I like to call it Mm. like rhythm-based music because it's not just about swing, you know, and traditional jazz. It's about what's being done today Mm. that can be called jazz. And it is jazz and it's certainly improvisational, et cetera. So I've also picked jazz as a way of like, hey, if you're a teacher, Scott, of jazz, you could try this stuff out on your jazz band. Then if you like it, okay, let's go look at that beta version of, you know, the concert band version that we've done. And and I want to expand that more. That's another story. <laughs> you know, but hey, this is working. This is cool for jazz band. This is cool. I can do all these things, right? So when I first started looking at it, at Play the Groove for schools, I go, well, we need new content. The traditional content is not going to work here. And it needs to be licensable, right? Absolutely. Because I can't market something. I can't even freely work with something unless I have agreements with my with artists. And publishing companies are more apt to be a little more resistant to things like uh, of big names. So I've actually started looking into, oh, what kind of cool music's available? Mm. And this brought out this like, wow, there's thousands and thousands of artists that we've never heard of. And they might not have had the machine behind them to make them top of mind. And they still may be a big band that a lot of people don't even know about just because there's so much of it out there. Right. Right. And there's no reason that a lot of that can't be played in high schools today. That makes it relevant. These 
people are alive. They're doing something in music today. They, you know, it could be a professor at a school that wrote some great stuff, or it could be an artist that, you know, like myself, who does music kind of on the side, but has this passion for music. Mm. And um, so the content became a big part of things. The next thing that came up to mind was it's not about the product. Mm. Okay. So if we're starting, I'm going to break these down a little bit here because each one of these is a stumbling block. Mm. If a teacher was to try to bring SEL into a jazz band, well, how do you bring in current music that's relevant, that's accessible? And I believe SEL, back to that question about what is SEL to me, is about process over the product. This is, about, this is not about pr- practicing for 15 weeks and doing a performance. Mm. This is about starting a tune and doing a performance in three weeks. Mm. Or three minutes. Or three minutes. As I saw you do in Oregon. <laughs> One period. The students gave a performance. In fact, I even engaged the audience to be a part of that performance. Absolutely. So I broke the fourth wall. Yes. Right? And the students, many of them never even played a percussion instrument before. I'm sure none of them have ever arranged the tune. And I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I bet most of them have never worked in a small group like that and created a new thing in one period. Right. So we got the... We got the new music. We have the process over product that I wanted to bring out. Then there's, oh, there are these things called standards, mm. right? How do we teach to the standards or align to the standards so that, you know, it's somewhat in an educational grounding kind of a structure. There's a legitimacy being brought to what is being created here in a way. And that's also where SEL comes in. And that's also where voice and choice comes in and the five E's and the four C's and all these other things that are just kind of really fabulous. And we talked about the global grooves and jazz. And I like to use the word current global grooves and jazz. Mm -hmm. And um, the last thing is that I thought of in this, as far as like a core tenet of what needs to be included is voice and choice. Student voice and choice. Student voice and choice that is somewhat moderated by the teacher. The teacher has a very, very important role. But the challenge, you know, when you get into this cognitive dissonance kind of a conversation is the teachers need to, and this is why jazz band can work a little, maybe a little better, is they can be a little bit more vulnerable and try new things without taking it to their concert band or strings or choir or see what applies to those different things. Does that make sense? It certainly does, Richard. Absolutely. You know, I mean, obviously, it makes a lot of sense when we're talking just typically a smaller group of students, a group of students where that improvisatory element is baked into the soil if we embrace it. What I think I'm most attracted to beyond the obvious SEL connections, which you're making brilliantly, is that I think a lot of times our jazz band instructors struggle with teaching improvisation, especially mm. if they don't come from a jazz background or they don't feel mm. that they have the identity of a jazz musician. It's like, well, just how do I teach? And, you know, trust me, guilty as charged at the beginning of my career. Uh, Jamie Abersold was my best friend and we used the books and, and learned a lot on how to scaffold that. But I think that not only have you given us a resource for a better understanding how to embed SEL through all of your really thoughtful tie-ins, but through voice and choice, you've also outlined a 
process again for teaching some of this creative space. So can you give us maybe a couple of examples of what Play the Groove would look like in practice? Sure. Um, and I think improvisation needs to be touched on almost as a separate element, but, and we'll touch what we can here, right? Well, actually, let's look at improvisation first, because that's something that is on the minds of everybody probably listening to this. And, you know, when you look at current music, it's not, doesn't have the same traditional structure as traditional music. And if you're a jazzer out there, or if you're not, you've probably heard of these things called 2-5-1 progressions. And how a tune, like all the things you are, can have like five different modulations in the tune, basically. That's like brain overload for me. You know, and to think of kind of trying to find something that sounds good as I'm trying to figure out my fingering, as I'm trying to figure out feels, I'm trying to figure out everything. Whoa. That's a total recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And I don't consider it necessarily a strong (laughs) learning platform that way. However, if you take a groove tune, and you can call all blues, you know, by Miles Davis, a groove tune, and there's plenty of them out there, even in the traditional world. But in the contemporary world, there's a lot of changes to music today that doesn't reflect the traditional jazz world. Mm. And so when we get into improvisation on that, we need to look at improvisation differently. And it's not so much about, you know, it's maybe more about thinking more melodically mm. and more lyrically. So if you're sitting on one chord or one two five change, like a C minor to F or something like that, um, you have a narrow set of parameters to start thinking about. And you could start thinking about melodic versus technical. New world for me. And what got me to be a better improvisation is the fact that I can think lyrically on groove music, not technically on traditional music. Mm. And when you say traditional music, you're talking traditional jazz. Bebop. Traditional jazz. Yeah. Yes, yes, to be clear on that. And, you know, it's um, it's tunes with lots of changes for now. And it's all swing. Bing, 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 which is, it's fine. It's great. It's got this great space to it. But we need gateways to get to different musics, right? And, and that's something that's explo- exciting to explore, but starting right at that is very difficult. So in improvisation, for example, if we bring in theory, if we bring in riffs, if we bring in rhythmic understanding so that we're, we start doing simple groove things over the melodic rhythm, the melody ideas over the melody rhythm, or... Melody ideas off the bass line or the bass drum or the snare drum or this or that. There's a different way that we can bring in the idea of improvisation. So this brings in the theory element. So I look at improving is to be a little bit of understanding basic theory, basic rhythms, basic melody, basic riffs, basic things, and then slowly start to do your own little thing. And over the course of, well, it all depends on the students, right? how experienced they are and what their backgrounds are. But it's a safe way to bring in improvisation rather than throwing people into the hot seat and just making them do it. 
Absolutely. Totally. Uh, yeah, you know, I think because especially the jazz, uh, oftentimes when we ask students to improvise and put themselves out there, that necessitates so much vulnerability, right? It's so much, so much risk. And, and one thing that I really appreciate about your approach, Richard, is that I think oftentimes in education, it's either a right or a wrong. Right. And one of the most beautiful things that I've ever heard about improvisation is you're always a half step away from the right note. <laughs> right. That just takes, okay, it was just a leading tone and there I am. Uh, and, you know, I, I think what I really appreciate about some of the other things that you've baked into Play the Groove is that you've given students a space to reflect and teachers yeah. to guide that reflection to say, what is your comfort level with this? So can you give us a couple of ideas on yeah. how you've really embraced that side of the rehearsal process? Yeah, well, um, it, yeah, this is an interesting thing because I think we're dealing with equity and equality in a way through here, right? Let's go there. Sure, absolutely. Uh, in a way, in a way. I don't know if it's exactly the right answer here, but let me jump into that a little bit in my head. Equality, of course, is giving every student the same soapbox to stand on, right? And except for the taller student can now see over the fence. You've all seen this comic. And the person that's challenged heights-wise or young, let's just consider it young, in this sense, still can't see over the fence, right? And okay, let's put give that scenario. The idea of equity, though, is giving people what they need. Well, how do, you, how do we do that in a jazz band of 20, 25 people? And I'm not just talking the 17-piece big band, but 25 people, where you want to keep two or three drummers occupied. You want to keep two bass players occupied. You want to keep two or three guitarists occupied. And I don't know. Every, every group in the country is totally different, right? Some may have one trumpet, two trombones, and five saxes, right? How do we build this equity and equitable scenario so that everyone has different levels of doing things, right? I think in general, Scott, that a tune needs to be chosen by the group, and we'll get into a song selection activity in which they start thinking like teachers, which is partly SEL, right? They have to start being aware of things in this. And we can go down through the castle SEL levels and go through different things that way. But if a tune works for 70% of the kids, the students, but you're going to have two or three that are outstanding and you're going to have two or three that are kind of like on scared level, right? Who are struggling. Struggling. Let's call it struggling. Thank you. Well, how do we create a concept that can work for that scenario? How do we create the content and the pedagogy to work for these type of scenarios? And to be honest, the traditional big band scene is getting less and less because schools are getting more and more pressured to find those players to do that. And um, so if we look at a class, though, of, say, 20 people and two or three are really good horn players, one way to give them more challenge to not bore them, right? Say they're a B-flat trumpet part or trumpet or E-flat or saxophone or even a trombone player who plays bass clef, right? Instead of giving that hot trumpet player the B-flat part, give them a C part. Instead of that trombone player who reads bass clef really well, give them a treble clef part. Instead of that E-flat player, give them a C part. Now their level has just been, their challenge has been raised, right? Now that core group, you know, okay, they're comfortable with their B flat part and please don't take it away from me. (laughs) 
so that that's one way of challenging the upper half. On the, the lower struggling, the two or three people, there's ways of in, why not instigate the flipped classroom. Mm-hmm. But don't do it for all. Do it for just the two or three students. Say, look, it, we're going to do this in a week. You know, after voice and choice is done and the, and the students have chosen their song, say, we're going to do this in about a week. But you give those students a little bit more time, maybe give them a little bit more attention in um, a one on one, maybe bring the three of them together or something like that. So, Richard, you've mentioned this a couple times, and I think that this is a strategy that many teachers use involving students in the selection process of the curriculum. Saying, okay, let, let's have you get to choose this one song on the concert, and then there's buy in. You approach it a little bit differently. Talk to us a little bit about how students can have that voice and choice with that you selected to. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, to begin with, why this all works, Scott, is that Play the Groove has a a unison based approach so that everyone plays the melody. Okay. So it's not like we're doing harmonic type of stuff that you would get in a big band. But that's okay because we're going to be touch using that base as a way to explore areas that have are not being explored today. Mm-hmm. So the idea behind the song selection activity that I've created is that a teacher predetermines a skill level. And you can find this on playthegroove.com. So the challenge could be um, medium two to three and or medium hard, which is level three to four. And we've created our own little guides, but made it on a one to five scale. Jazz band is generally above two to begin with, just by the fact that they're generally going to be a little better players and they're not learning the basics. So when a student uh, goes through this activity, and I couldn't do it at the, the conference necessarily because it's just another element of chance, <laughs> but the student gets to pick three songs of, say, five or six songs that the teacher pre-approved. So they can do that because they like the song. It's a gut reaction, whatever. It's pretty quick, right? Short samples, perhaps. But then they're asked to go in and look at some data. So now we're drawing from data, and we've all heard the word, and they have to be using a website to do this. So they're on a technical, they're interactive to the degree that they are, but they're bringing in this thing called critical thinking. Mm. Ah, what does it mean that the melody is a 3.0, the rhythm is a 2.5, but the chord changes are a 2.0? What does that mean? And these are things that a teacher can use through inquiry-based instruction to get students to come up with their own thoughts on it before clarity is bringing. So what do you think that means? If we have a one to five scale where five is really difficult and one is really simple, what do you think a three on the melody means? And how does that map on to your skill set? And how does that map onto your skill set, but also the ensemble skill set, right? So at this point, you know, they're doing this multitasking thing in a way because now they're like, oh, now I have to listen to those three songs. But what do these numbers mean? What does all this data mean, right? Which is kind of like another step. And then they have to pick two songs at that point. So they're throwing one out for whatever reason. And they're all doing this independently, right? So that means even someone that has a quiet voice has a chance to have a loud voice. Mm. It's like voting. If you don't vote, stop complaining. Right. You know, if you're not being engaged, you have to be engaged to make a difference. So after step, when you're down to two songs, now you have to listen, you have to watch the sheet music 
and I give examples of uh, a first page of two or three different things. So they get to see the difficulty for real. <laughs> now, they could do this all at once, but the activity guides them. Number one, the first step, pick three songs you like. Number two, okay, look at this basic data. Number three, now you can listen to the whole song and you can listen to the sheet music. In fact, you can see the teacher guidelines. Mm. Why not? Why keep the wizard behind the curtain? Why keep the wizard behind the... And the teacher? The teacher does this exact same exercise. Mm. In fact, they do it first because then they can do their explanation for their group, which is completely different at every school, right? I can't be, I can't do 5,000 different curriculums or, you know, I can do a one that has a lot of options and immensely flexible, right? Right. So now they get one, down to one song. They turn that into the teacher and now it starts coming up to collaboration because Without a 20 kids, you make it seven choosing one, six choosing another, seven choosing this. I mean, I don't know. And what do you do if there's a tie? You know, this is collaboration. This is communication. This is future discussion. This is the critical thinking coming out in words, perhaps. What I love about everything that I'm hearing, Richard, is that oftentimes we do this just we put it out there, pick the song you want. But walking through the process that you just outlined for us it really does give it intentionality and it does purposefully pull out some of these skill sets that we're looking to harness and nurture in our classroom. It's that meaningful change in practice, Mm -hmm. right? How do you bring these elements together so that they're meaningful for the teacher, for the administration, for the state, for the whoever we're trying to appeal and appease and, and also just grow, right? And how is it meaningful for the students? Yeah. How does it lead and build our life skills, which is a huge part of SEL, right? Absolutely. And, you know, another thing, you know, which is very interesting, Scott, is like SEL is not just for students. Teachers need amazing amount of SEL, whether or not they want to admit it or not. This cognitive dissonance that we all live in, right? Some people may smoke cigarettes and they can't, they know they shouldn't smoke, you know, or they shouldn't eat that ice cream tonight, you know? They know. <laughs> their doctor has said so. You know, their A1C points counts are up. You know? It's like, whatever, right? Oh, I have just a little bit of ice cream. You know, it's like this cognitive dissonance is really strong. So, and my disposition is like, oh, this is easy. But no, it's really, it's kind of really hard. So, how do we bring SEL to teachers in that right. sense? And yes, that's workshop, it's professional development, it's ongoing professional development. Carnegie did a recent paper, which was wonderful on the fact that professional development once a year is not very useful. Mm-mm. You got very inspired in them last weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. All these great people, they're so engaged. We had such wonderful conversations. And on the flight home, everything just kind of got sucked out. And now, <laughs> especially the people that we're talking to, they're back to their real lives. And that's why it has to be an ongoing thing. So um, the song selection activity just gets everyone going. And then from there, you know, uh, just maybe one more thought on, on what this looks like in the classroom, because mm-hmm. you, you planted a seed, which I really think is at the heart of Play the Groove. And that's where 
the students really do take the lead, where that engaging of the students, that student ownership, that student empowerment, where the teacher takes a much less directive role. Mm -hmm. Can you paint the picture for us about what that looks like? Well, I'd like to consider, you've probably heard that thing, the the guide on the side versus the sage on the stage. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if you notice from my OMEA, I was not ever conducting. Right. Not once. And I was always on the side. In fact, I didn't do much with the students. I mean, there was a disposition that allowed me to communicate with them. Sure. Sometimes even without using words, but just by allowing them. This partly is, I think a lot of teachers, whether it's traditional or even current, don't know this repertoire, Mm. right? And that's scary. If I was to teach concert band, I would feel that way too and do Holtz the planet or something of that nature. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I would get through it. I'd have fun. (laughs) But would I be able to break it down and do what you probably do? No way, right? And that was another thing I had to solve in terms of that because a lot of people played flute, clarinet, and oboe, or bassoon, or euphonium in college, and they went all the way through high school doing that. How are they going to teach a jazz band with a rhythm section? This is where the informal world can come into the formal world and create a blended experience. And this is where I try to let the music do the teaching. Mm. Play the song a lot. Let the students play with the song in class. So everyone plays the melody. Even the bass player, the drummer can go over on the vibes or or they can at least play the rhythm, you know, that type of a thing, right? And then everyone plays rhythm instruments. If you ask your classes how many people have never played maracas or shakers or tambourine, you're going to get a lot of hands going up. Right. They might have played one or two, but they haven't played it with a song, with a group, as a concerted straight effort. And it doesn't matter what they play. We're not breaking it down into the specific rhythms. Oh, this is how you have to do the conga beat. Just move your hands to the music, feel rhythm. You know, then when everyone plays the whole song, they have a structure. Mm-hmm. They have everyone playing the melody. The rhythm section can do the rhythm section parts because they've all played with the recording. They can take it home. They got the recording. They got the music. At this point, you can start introducing theory. You can start introducing melodic ideas and composition. We provide blank worksheets with the chord changes of that tune that can be used by a teacher to bring out theory lessons, basic triadic stuff, voice leading, right? There's no reason a, a fifth can't move to a third. In God forbid. God forbid. It sounds good if it works good. If the person, you know, it doesn't have to be this three seven thing all the way through, you know. And then we could get into also small groups, right? In which students start solving problems, mm. problem based learning, right? PBL at that level, and then they could put those practices to work. Hey, how are we going to solve this problem of going from section A to section B? And to me, this is at the heart of identity, belonging, and agency. I mean, we've heard it the entire time that we've been talking, Richard. It's, you know, what are the students bringing to the table? How can they come together and work through these challenges? And then have that manifest in a decision-based product that's going to then be shared. To me, this is just, it, it bleeds SEL. It does. And, you know, it brings out the social awareness of all things. You know, they have to be socially aware of their surroundings to be able to interact in all these different settings now, right? Oh my God, I'm playing a percussion instrument. I feel uncomfortable. But I'm not saying, hey, play this specific rhythm. 
You know, I'm just saying, just play with it. Be aware. You could get into details later. Lots of times. There's relationship skills, right? You're in a small group or you're in a bigger group. You still have to relate to everybody. And if you're going to make a comment, you know, or you need to listen, you need to do a lot of things. You need to be a responsible decision maker. And this is all about tinkering, you know, improv, you know, we talk about the the word tinkering in the SEL world and we talk about the word improvisation in the music world. Well, this is about students playing with something, giving them some clay and figuring out what it looks like until they get something that they like. And the teacher too has to tinker. Sure. And I don't think, I certainly don't think that play the groove needs to be a mandatory, you know, thing (laughs) in which it's brought down on high that you need to do this. No, it's kind of like, hey, here's an alternative approach. This is a supplemental approach. Mm -hmm. Here's a way to augment what you're doing in the your traditional world that you know very well. You may be a great jazz educator, but are you teaching composition? You know, are they able to write their own melodies? They're not just one or two kids, everybody. And, and, you know, to me, this is also about identity development. It's like how many of our kids in our space see themselves and say, I am an improviser. I am a composer. I am a jazzer. I am a, you know, this certainly opens up so many doors for our students to be able to see them in spaces that traditionally we don't give them that opportunity. That's being self-aware, right? Yep. And look, my biggest beef with the traditional model is it seems to train, well, two things. Number one is it teaches to the group, mm-hmm. doesn't teaching to the individual. And number two, it seems to be preparing everyone for some professional career in playing music under that traditional model that they've been playing. And that's not today's music. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that's today's music. Yes, if you're going to go on as a performer, yes, you better be able to rip. And yes, you better be able to play all the scales. And yes, you better be able to play two, five, ones and four different keys in a song and understand that. And certainly if you're going to go on for college and music, you need to do deep dives and all that stuff. But today's musician and this appreciation for music, right? If it's made a little less scary and a little bit more culturally diverse to learn about different things that may be more appealing to that third trumpet player mm-hmm. than actually playing. Maybe there is that performance. They're going to do an in-band room concert in three weeks. You know, yes, if they can do it in a day, that's great. But in three weeks is fine, in which they bring their friends in. And maybe there's someone that likes music promotion, and they're going to be doing more of the announcements and Facebook stuff, right? Maybe there's someone that needs to handle logistics. What about the next step after the band room performances? And this is more of a formative approach, right? In which they do a cafeteria concert. But by now they have three Play the Groove songs learned. So you have some people that are like focusing on the music and transition from one tune to another because you don't have a teacher up there going like this. This is all on them to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And But you have someone else that has to talk to the principal and get permission. Richard, you know, to me, it's the responsibility. You know, it's like a gigging musician doesn't wait for the, the club owner to come to you. you. You have to learn that skill and it's got to be taught somewhere. We have to follow our dreams in our life. And it's not necessarily always music, right? It could be being a medical person or it could be wanting to work in social work or it could be, uh, God, pick of one of thousands of careers. It could be, it could be coding, 
right? But what is it that makes someone take the extra steps Mm -hmm. to get a little bit more ingratiated into that world of theirs? Or, hey, look at there are 250 different careers in music. And typically, our, our traditional music education prepares you for one career in music. It doesn't expose you all these different things, you know, um, the critical thinking, the teamwork, the multitasking, the create, the leadership, all those things. So yeah, it's all very fascinating. <laughs> I mean, how to how to make all this happen is kind of like, well, that's my new challenge that I'm in right now. But uh, okay, day at a time. <laughs> You've given us such a great tool to work through this. So as we start to come towards the end of our time today, I want to leave you with this question Hmm. because I think oftentimes we start with this question, but it also gives us a space to come together because philosophically, Richard, your heart and your, your vision for what music education and jazz education can look like really is putting that student in the center. So I'm going to leave you with this. Why do we teach and make music? Hmm. I think there are many answers to that, and there are many great ones. I think partly in in school, and I'm secondary in my world, there's a social component to music which can't be addressed in really any other subject. Sports kind of gets there to a degree, but sports is certainly competitive always. There's always a winner and loser. And I don't think music needs should be necessarily competitive. I don't like competitions that way. Oh, I heard this story just two weeks ago from a concert band teacher in which out of like 10 different concert bands, they got third and some of the kids were crying. Really? And you know, by that point, they're probably pretty small on the numbers because they're always a state thing anyway. So (laughs) um, I think music social is great. It's, it's, it was my, it kept me sane through high school. People need this, place to explore themselves, to be themselves, to sit next to someone and have a relationship with them, right? I think music in in a way is also needs to be highly cultural in that, look, every classroom contains students from wherever. At least their parents came from someplace or their parents' parents came from someplace, unless you're really isolated. And it's also a global society. We did this tune in this one group, and it was called Serengeti. And I asked, hey, who knows where the Serengeti is? And out of 15 people, nobody knew where the Serengeti was yeah. in high school. It wasn't until I said, you ever hear of the, song, the movie Lion King? <laughs> <laughs> that they started to understand what that meant. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, let's start off. Then we did the soundscape where everyone had to create animal sounds on their instruments. So this exploration starts to happen. And that's great because if they ever have kids, they can like start to talk with their kids differently, right? There's this like, wow. And then the whole song, these animals things morph into the groove, which morphs into this, which morphs into the tune being played. And now they have an arrangement that's unique to them, you know? You know, I think music is all those things. It's appreciation for a lot of these things. So that's my final words. And we do it in community and we do it together. Just how our community was made better when I met you in Oregon. (laughs) You know, it really was, Scott. And I so much appreciated you coming up. And I remember walking back and seeing your name tag and I go, I know that guy. (laughs) (laughs) But my head was rolling, right? You know, I'm on this, I'm on the moment. I needed more water. (laughs) Uh, So glad you came up and I'm so glad we uh, became friends and we're doing this. And this is a fabulous thing.
my friend, the honor is mine, is ours. Uh, we will provide resources in the notes to this episode on how to get more information with Play the Groove. Thank you. And uh, the, uh, I know you're just starting your work in this area, and we are all looking yes. forward to where this is going to lead. Well, I want to thank you, Scott, and I really want to thank Music for All for putting this forum together. I've watched many of the webinars that you've done, and... They're all so informative because we all come from such different places, right? And yet we're trying to bring in this new modern educational thought and making it as productive as we can and compelling and engaging for our youth. So that's what this is all about. And thank you for the work you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We're in this together. Richard, from the bottom of my heart, be well and be safe, my friends. Take care. Take care. For me, the question for teachers always comes down to the how. We value student voice and choice. We value identity, belonging, and agency. But how? How do we do this through the process? My supreme thanks to Richard Frank for giving us the resource of Play the Groove, but also taking the time to talk to us today, to give us insight into how the jazz band The jazz ensemble can be that space to serve as a catalyst to help our students develop not only that musical autonomy that he spoke so brilliantly about, but also to develop those life skills that will take them long after they leave our classroom. For Music for All, I'm Scott Edgar. Thank you.